Hi, my name's Dr Rachel Steen and I'm a GP registrar working in Sheffield. Unfortunately, despite our best efforts, patients most in need don't get the best care. This problem is present and very real in the UK. I feel, with increasing challenges and changes in both our health and social care services, health inequality needs to be at the top of the agenda. Despite having had a keen interest in population health and preventative medicine throughout my training, I find tackling health inequalities often feels complex, with no obvious solutions. Throughout this podcast, I aim to simplify this. I'll be talking to some of the most experienced colleagues in the field, hoping to fuel interest, inspiration and further discussion around this challenging topic. Hello, welcome to Finding Fair Health podcast. Today, I'm very happy to be talking to Greg Fell, Director of Public Health in Sheffield. Greg has been Director of Public Health here in Sheffield since 2016. Along with having the weight of Sheffield's health on his shoulders, he writes a popular blog and is well known in South Yorkshire and across the country for his dynamic and academic approach and insights to public health. Greg is understandably a very busy man, and to get a chance to chat to him today, I've had to get up at the crack of dawn and meet Greg at the start of his day in the Sheffield Town Hall in his cycling gear. The beauty of meeting Greg here is that we do get interrupted occasionally by echoing corridors and the Town Hall bell, but that is all part of the fun. Hi Greg, great to have you here today. Thank you. I'm personally really excited about our discussion today because last time we spoke I learned loads from you about public health in Sheffield in particular. So to get us started... I thought I would ask you about your earliest memory of getting interested in health inequalities and population health. Um, So I I, I did a degree in biochemistry and I decided in the final term of a three-year degree in biochemistry that I didn't want to be a biochemist, nor did I want to work in a lab, nor did I want to work for the pharma industry, nor did I want to be a science teacher. I thought, ah, right, okay, what am I going to do now? So um, some... um, a short period of unemployed follow, unemployment followed and then I ended up as a researcher in a nursing department at Hull University doing some work around smoking and drug use in pregnancy, um, midwives' attitudes to raising it and addressing it, our mum's attitudes. It was very, very interesting. From, from there, I became more broadly interested in what, what was then known as health promotion, is now known as health improvement, it's broadly the same thing, and ended up on the Masters in Health Promotion at what was then Leeds Polytechnic, it's now Leeds Metropolitan University, I think, and had very early exposure to, to folk like Sylvia Tilford and Keith Tones, who had, um, one, established what health promotion is in this country and two, had health inequalities ripped through them at, at the core. And, and that was from, from, from then on, I, one, had an interest in this space and two, worked broadly in the space. Okay, um, so it all kind of started while you were at university. What was it that really ignited that passion in this area? To be honest, I don't know. Um, there's something about the sense of unjustness and unfairness. It's, it, you know, we dress health inequalities up in all sorts of fancy academic language, but put bluntly, it's uh, it's about poorer health and shorter lives for those at the bottom end of the pile. Whether whether the bottom end is defined by geography or by uh, uh, race or ethnicity or some other aspect, it's not fair. It's not right, and that I guess that that inspired the the passion and enthusiasm. 
Yeah, I can really identify with that. And was that something you think you had, you developed at university or was it something that's kind of been grown? No, no, it didn't, it didn't, it didn't develop at university. It came probably after, after, during and after I was doing the the masters. It was a part-time master, so I was working at the same time. So the the enthusiasm develops after, certainly undergrad. I was doing a degree in biochemistry. Why would I be interested in social policy uh, as as a kind of heavy duty scientist? So the, the enthusiasm developed after university, once you get exposed to the real world and see what the real world's like, which you clearly don't at university by and large, or you do, but it's in very small doses. Mm-hmm. Um, so let's take you back, Greg, to the beginning of your career. Mm-hmm. Where did you picture yourself? Well, tell me what you mean, where did I picture myself? So did you always picture yourself as a director? No, oh film? God, no. Um, so. So, first proper job was as a as a researcher in a nursing department, and that that second proper job was as a what do we call them health promotion specialist in in Morecambe Bay Health Promotion Department up in up in Cumbria, um, lived in Barrowing Furness. So, um, and at that time there was no fixed or defined career path for people who worked in the thing that we then called health promotion. The the in about the late 1980s, early noughties, the Faculty of Public Health, which sets the, the, the standard, I guess, for public health as a career, came to a realisation or a dawning realisation that you don't actually need a medical degree to be a public health specialist. You never lay hands on individual patients. And many of the skills and attributes were, that, that were required of public health specialists were drawn from fields well beyond medicine, uh, well, beyond, well beyond kind of biomedical sciences, actually. There's a lot of sociology, a lot of economics, a lot of statistics, uh, etc. inherent in it. So the faculty redrew their training curriculum and said, well, you know, we'll take people from uh, backgrounds other than medicine, or bottoms, as we're called, um, into public health training. But, you know, I was... Way, 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 way away from that. So that that hadn't dawned on me. Um, so I worked in health promotion in various jobs up until the mid two thousands, there or thereabouts. Um, I, I was working in Leeds Primary Care Trust as, as then was, um, and I said to my boss at the time, who was the director of public health, he still is the director of public health in Leeds. I said, "What should I do when I grow up, Ian?" And he, it was Ian, uh, Ian Cameron that suggested I, I enter the public health training scheme, which I, I did in the, uh, the, the mid two thousands. Ended up as a public health consultant in Bradford, and then was there for a few years, and then eventually landed up here. That potted career history. Yeah, wow, okay, how interesting. How did you get from being a public health consultant to then being director of public health? Is that quite a smooth transition? Or? Well, um, um, so, someone someone leaves the job as a public health uh, uh, yeah. director of public health and the, the employer advertised and I fill in the application yeah, form okay. and I'm beautiful enough by the panel. Yeah. Um, no, practically. So... Um, <laughs> This job became available because the the, the previous incumbent the, the previous incumbent resigned for a bunch of reasons. Um, um, I was in Bradford doing a public health consultant job that was very very healthcare NHS oriented. Clearly, public health is a lot, but the, the scope of public health is a lot broader than the NHS. But I was doing a job in Bradford, particular job in Bradford that was very healthcare oriented. And I knew this this DPH job had come up, and I wasn't going to apply because one, I thought I wasn't good enough for the job. Two, I live in North Leeds; it's a bloody long way to commute, as I now know to my cost. 
and uh, three, I thought there'd be better people than me um, applying. What's the point? So um, in the end, it was the Barnsley DPH who said to me, you better reply. So I'm going to come camp outside your front door until you fill in the application form. So I was persuaded and applied. And, uh, and was deemed the most beautiful most beautiful person on the day that's, that's got the job. Yeah, okay, okay. So there wasn't a huge amount of confidence there from your side? Or... No, absolutely, no, absolutely there wasn't. I didn't think I was good enough for the job. I didn't think my kind of skill set and competency set were, were good enough for the job because, um, um, as I said, the previous job I'd done was very technically oriented around um, the, the the kind of use of clinical epidemiology, health economics, around the way NHS the way the NHS does its work and does its planning. Um, the DPH job is way broader than that. Um, as my current boss says, everything that happens in Sheffield affects our health and well-being in some way or other, uh, positively or negatively. Your job is to go forth and influence that. Your budget is the fourteen billion pounds into the economy of Sheffield. Uh, ooh, right, okay. I'm not sure I'm quite up for, skilled for, uh, skilled up for that job. So I wasn't going to apply. Um, as I say, I was persuaded by somebody else to apply. Um, um, it, it's, it's, it's transpired that, that folk tend to think I'm doing a reasonably good job. So maybe I was wrong. Um, maybe I should have had a bit more confidence in myself. Yeah, definitely, definitely. And what do you think now? What do I think now? It's the best job in the world. Uh, definitely the best job I've ever had. Um, by, by, by a stretch um, it's continually different it's continually challenging difficult it's, it, it has its days where it's a bit of a grind um, but um, each day is a different grind a different kind of grind um, and it, it's all it's all enjoyable um, of course it's challenging the, the key challenge is you kind of never get to um, be able to see and count the benefits of your work because it's the, the noble art of preventing bad stuff happening. Well, you can't, it's impossible. So uh, that's the key challenge. And it's, it's a slow moving job. It's not kind of like acute medicine where you know, it happens really, really quickly. It doesn't, um, the results happen really slowly over a long period of time. So uh, uh, despite all of that, it's an amazing job and I would never do anything different. And what about that confidence? Do you still, do you, do you have confidence in yourself? Oh, um, um, well, yes. Um, but 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 every, all, all all professionals are well not all but many professionals I know have this sort of um, oh I'm not good enough I'm going to be found out as a fraud kind of syndrome. It's, um, syndrome. it's the imposter syndrome thing, yeah. and, and I, I mentioned this to to my ex um, educational supervisor once, and I said to her, um, I feel I feel like I'm a fraud. I'm going to get found out, and and, and Jenny said to me, Oh, don't worry, I felt like. All my life, and then she she said she once had a chat with the with the person who was the president of the faculty of public health at the time, and, and Rod Griffith said, "Yeah, yeah we, we all feel like that." So yeah, um, no, I'm I'm a lot more confident in the job than, than I was before I got the job. <laughs> what would you suggest to health professionals earlier in their career wanting to find out more about health inequality? Um, read read a lot of people write decent blogs on it. Um, the other thing I'd say is don't don't be limited by the world view that your current job gives you. Mm-hmm. Um, your current job will give you a set of skills and a set of uh, set of ways of looking at the world um, that will um, shape the way that you think about stuff, the way that you do stuff. Don't be limited by that because there's a whole bunch of different worldviews out there to address the problem. Um, the, the, the problem is health inequalities, the gap between best and worst in how long people live and how, how, health, how, how healthy people are. Um, 
the economists have a lot to have a lot of useful stuff. The sociologists have a lot of useful stuff. Um, so, so don't don't be limited by a healthcare oriented view of health inequalities. Look at other fields and other disciplines, and you'll learn an awful lot by doing so. Any specific resources you mentioned? I know you do a good blog. Um, I, I'm, having a, I'm having a restaurant blogging at the moment. Oh, yeah. I mean, I've, run out, I've run out of ideas, things to write about. <laughs> so, um, I'll, I'll come up with some new ideas eventually. Um, um, any specific resources? So, the Marmot report um, mm-hmm. is as good a place as any to start. Um, mm-hmm. And it's still, it's, still, it's still the test of time in terms of one, what, why health inequalities exist, and two, it gives a pretty practically oriented set of uh, set of recommendations my only criticism of the marmot report is well it's not criticism but my own reflection of the marmot report is it's focused on national government and the things the, the levers that national government have rather than uh, what can be done at local level many of the things that are in it are still still relevant have traction at local level um, my, my other um, go-to place for stuff on health inequalities is due north um, which was done, which was commissioned by, I think it was Public Health England, and uh, again is a is a more of a sociological take on why health inequalities exist and what to do about them. It's five or six years old, but again, stood the test of time, still pretty coherent as far as I can tell. So those are the two places that I'd start. But as I say, don't don't th- th- those are two reports that are written about health inequalities by by. Um, people coming from um, a particular paradigm. So I'd also encourage people to read the stuff by the Joseph Roundtree Foundation, uh, which clearly majors on poverty as its starting point, but they produce some amazing stuff. Read some stuff from um, IPPR, Institute of Public Policy Research. They've done some amazing stuff on um, health inequalities from an economic perspective. So wealth and economic inequalities, which are at the root of health inequalities, but there are plenty of other people writing about health inequalities from different starting points and different worldviews, um, which are equally equally valid. There's there's this thing about what's your way into the topic. Is it a um, inequalities in health outcomes? Therefore, we have an NHS first and then work out solution to the problem, or is it a whole society kind of solution? The, so the things that I was my, my starting point is inequality in access to green space, inequality in exposure to poor air. Um, The air we breathe now is illegal, I'm sorry about it, but that's the way it is. But that's weighted towards the east of the city, as are most of the other risks and or lack lack of assets. So so my starting point isn't a sort of an NHS then look beyond, it's the whole of society is the bit that matters. So, which is why public health is appropriately placed in local government. Because yeah, it has, it has, it has um, greater ability to influence some of that stuff. And you think that move was a sensible one then? Yeah, it's the, it was yeah. the most sensible move, definitely. So, um, as I say, when, when I first learned of that move in 2012, when Lansley produced his reforms, I was in a very NHS-oriented public health job at the time. Um, oh no, 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 that's absolutely the wrong thing to do. There's no way that would be a sensible thing to do. Six, seven years down the line, I was 100% wrong. It's, it's absolutely the right place to be. Um, and as far as I'm concerned, there should be no going back. Um, given the pain that we, that, that we went through to, to kind of organisationally lift and shift from NHS employment to local government employment, I never want to go through that pain again. It was awful. Um, all of those things that are just part of the woodwork that 
have to be dug out of the woodworks. So, yeah, mm-hmm. practically, it would be the wrong thing to do. We'd spend three years working out, yeah. um, uh, you know, three years on administrative stuff, not doing anything useful. So, um, uh, and then in terms of the the uh, location of the responsibility, local government's absolutely the right place to be. Um, and as I say to um, the CCG employees regularly, the decisions that the planning committee make or the highways committee make are considerably more impactful on the well-being of the population than the decisions the CCG board make. Um, leads to an awfully awkward conversation. Occasionally there are tumbleweed moments when we say that, but I'll stand by it. Mm-hmm. So hence the ability to be in an organisation to influence some of those decisions is much more, is much more impactful. In theory, the, the, the practice, you know, you have to make good on the theory, but, uh, but that's, the, that's the, the challenge. Yeah, I can see that. So you say that your job is the best job in the world, um, also very challenging. Um, does it ever feel impossible? Well, mostly, yeah, but uh, all jobs feel impossible. So my, my route out of impossibility is come to work, do your best, go home. Uh, you know, all, all jobs are impossible, all jobs are heaped full of impossible asks and impossible expectations so uh, you, you can only do your best um, in terms of impossibility um, nothing's really impossible you can kind of come in work out the solutions to the impossible problems step by miserable step and get on with implementing the solutions so uh, of course it occasionally feels impossible but nothing really is impossible there probably are some things that are impossible but um, nothing's, nothing's, um, nothing's insurmountable at the end of the day no, okay. Oh, well, that's, that's good to hear. Um, what, what are the main problems do you think you face in your current role? Um, main problems. Um, so, to, 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 the two resourcing kinds of issues. One is um, we are continually cutting the uh, size of the bag of cash that's called the public health grant. So, the public health grant pays for health visitors, school nurses, sexual health services, smoking cessation services, drug and alcohol treatment services, weight management, and then a whole bunch of other things of, of, of that ilk. About four years ago, Department of Health, it's, it is Department of Health money that, that is then passed to local government, and Treasury announced that they were, they were giving local government an in-year substantial cut to that grant, and then subsequent years we've cut it by 2, 2.6% every year since then. Um, that's a real cash cut. There's no, there's no kind of niceties about real terms and inflationary uplift. It's a cash cut um, year on year, uh, and managing that's difficult because bluntly it involves sacking health visitors or drug workers or people of that ilk, and we all think that's stupid. Uh, I've yet to find a director of public health. I think that's a, that's a smart thing to do. However, there's no choice about that. Uh, it's a treasury policy. Um, so when, when someone grumbles to me, I say, well, you need to write to the treasury to tell them that. Don't tell me because I agree with you. I'll help you write a letter to the treasury. So, so a significant chunk of mine and, more importantly, my staff's time is spent every year working out what to cut. Not what to invest in, but what, to, what services we're going to cut. Well, there's a number of difficulties in, in that, but the, the, the key difficulty is trying to work out what, what's least damaging, which cuts are least damaging. And we're, we're way beyond the point of trimming fat now. Um, we are well into hacking into bones. Um, and it's unpleasant. Um, you know, no one thinks it's a good idea. So that's, that's challenge one. Challenge two is the broader backdrop of local authority finances. So, you know, um, the, the public health budget, the bit I'm directly responsible for, 33 and a bit million quid, we've cut by a quarter over the past five, four or five years. 
local authority budgets over the past six or seven years have been cut by 50%. The local authority budgets pay for things that you and I call the determinants of health at local level. Social care, um, our investments around the transport system, parks and green space, um, leisure services, etc., etc., have been cut by 50%. Now, and it's fair to say that social care has many, not all, but many statutory functions. So we've cut those less because they're statutory and appropriately so. So we've we've savaged the parks budget. We all like parking. We all think Park Sheffield is a fairly well parked park city. The, the, the budget that pays for the maintenance and the upkeep has been savaged. And that will have, is having, a detrimental impact on people's health and well-being. Um, if you're jobbing GP, you'll see that at the sharp end. Um, it's a bit insidious, it's a bit difficult to measure, it's a bit difficult to count, but it's definitely happening. Uh, and it's set against the backdrop of an austerity policy, um, which I'm not boring with the numbers now, but the, the broad story is the austerity policy has had the biggest impact on those who are most in need and most vulnerable, both at individual and at family level, but mainly by roads of uh, welfare welfare changes, which are led by national government, but also by roads of the way in which austerity policy is differentially impacted on poorer uh, uh, councils that serve poorer populations versus those that serve more, more affluent populations. Those that serve more affluent populations have done less badly out of us. We've all done badly, to be fair. But the, the, those serving the most affluent populations have done less badly. So all of that's going on in the background, um, all of which makes for exceptionally challenging times for, for local government. It, it will survive. We don't quite know how sometimes, but it will survive. So those are two, two of the, the key challenges. So when someone says to me, um, well, do, do you really have to make those cuts to the health visiting? Budget? Let's pick on health visiting because it's easy. I could say, well, no, I don't. But the net effect, we just we just have to sack more social workers, which again is a stupid thing to do. So the, the, those the resource challenges are pretty much all pervasive, to be honest, and they're all pervasive in a, here in our financial management sense, but they're also pervasive in a, um, the impact on the population um, sense. Um, despite all of that, this council has tried damned hard to its credit to maintain its investment in a preventive model of service. We haven't always got that right, and you know we, we have made some mistakes in that space, but, but we've tried damned hard to do that, um, um, and in many respects we've succeeded. So two, those are two challenges. The third challenge is building health and well-being into all policies. So um, as I say, when uh, the... Um, the transport committee, um, or the, those that are responsible for transport planning, we all know that um, active travel it will achieve one health benefits, but two congestion benefits. Um, the, the active the, the tra- transport planners call it what do they call it co, co, co- benefits or something along those lines. But transport nationally works on the premise that the car is king and, the, and congestion is bad. The route out of congestion is to build more road capacity. Guess what? If you build more road capacity, it'll soon be full of it'll be soon, soon be full of people in cars. So, same in healthcare. The route out of um, problems in healthcare is more hospital capacity. Well, guess what? As soon as you build a bigger hospital, it's full of people. Um, so, um, looking at other cities, Copenhagen is the obvious poster boy. There are more bikes than people in Copenhagen. Um, a mate of mine has just been to Copenhagen and he said bike jams are a regular occurrence, but so many bikes that there's a jam, there's worse problems to have. So um, <laughs> building that mindset into all of our thinking is 
this is in knowing the trade is health health in all policies. It's an easy thing that trips off the tongue. It's quite hard to do because the transport planning, I'll pick on transport planners here, but transport planners think in a certain way, are trained in a certain way. Their their world and their system is is moulded by the Department of Transport that operates in a certain way. So um, building health and health policies into transport policy and uh, professional practice, it's kind of like swimming a little bit upstream or or trying to change the path of least resistance. So um, uh, it's not easy, but that's that's the challenge. And I could say the same about welfare policy. You could say the same about employment policy. You could say the same about pretty much any policy. So the the, the, the probably the most important challenge is practically building health into all policies. Hence, we've got team public health specialists. That's their job is to work out how, and they do it bit by bit. It's they either engineer or they take uh, or they build opportunities. So. Um, Fuel poverty, 20% of people in Sheffield um, live in fuel poverty. They can't afford to heat their home. Um, the, the, the choice between heat or eat is a real, is, is a pervasive one in, in 20% homes in the city. That's not good for a whole bunch of reasons. So what's the, the, the answer? Well, some of, some of the answer is around building alternative forms of energy supply, um, which are less expensive, which is uh, which is way off piste of public health, defined narrowly, but is legitimately in the scope of public health. The second area of expertise around fuel poverty is what are our, um, particularly um, those responsible for both the private rented sector um, and council stock doing around thermal efficiency, insulation, and that even if you can afford to heat your home, if you've got no insulation, then all of the heat, all of the money that you put into the heat is going to go out the wall. So um, what are we doing in our council-owned stock around, uh, where appropriate, retrofitting um, um, loft, simple stuff like loft insulation? There's a whole bunch of schemes and investments to invest in, invest in loft insulation. My job in that is to, one, and ensure that it happens and to ensure it's targeted appropriately at those who are most at risk. But then the real issue in, in the housing sector is private rented housing. Our stock and social landlord stock is pretty good actually. Privately owned stock is pretty good, but the private rented sector is poor. So um, our, our job in that is around the licensing standards because you can't rent without a license to rent. The council is the licensing body. So um, what standards do our licensing committee adopt and apply to the private rented sector and what do those licensing standards have to say about cold damp homes and those kinds of things. So so practically we'll take all sorts of opportunities to build health into policies of all types and flavours. Does that give you a flavour? Yeah, it does. I'm, what, I'm, I'm really interested to hear that like, you're trying to get health into lots of policies. What about it the other way around? They're trying to get Sort of health inequality into policies. So I know a lot with so with the long term plans just yep. come out, and um, it's good to see that health inequality is being mm. more interwoven mm. into the policies. Um, what do you think about that? So b- building health inequality into our policies, it's it's a spin on health in our policies, but it's ensuring that, it's a, that, that your efforts are targeted to those at the, the lowest end of the spectrum. At the end of the day, Mama. Nailed it when he came up with the term proportionate universality. Um, everyone should have access to universal services, but those with most need should have access to more. And I've never gone far from that, to be honest. So um, the, the work I described around fuel poverty 
is pretty much universally targeted at those at the worst end of the health spectrum. Um, and that happens by default. But if it didn't happen by default, then we'd need to make sure that it, that, that it was built in. Um, on the long-term plan and health inequalities, I guess I was disappointed in the long-term plan and made my views pretty clear on Twitter. It, it's, it was a very insular NHS-oriented document. And, and it was a sort of this is about this is an NHS plan I get that um, but it was about the, the orientation was about the, the NHS can sort its own problems out thank you very much the NHS can't sort health inequalities out because health inequalities the things that lead to health inequalities wealth and economic inequality inequality in access to leisure and or parks and green spaces uh, air quality which is very inequitably distributed and, and to be fair the NHS long-term plan made some passing nods at that but um, not awfully credit credibly if i'm honest the key one of the key challenges for the nhs in the space of health inequalities is the inverse care law it's alive and well in the nhs i think it's a while since we've crunched the numbers in this city i suspect the, the inverse care law is alive and well in this city just as it is in any other city it certainly was last time i saw some credible number crunching a good few years ago now I have no reason to suspect that the national number crunching that I've seen recently, I think the Luffield Trust did something for the Financial Times, oddly enough, just before Christmas. Uh, and the conclusion of the Nuffield Trust is the inverse care law is alive and well, and I have no yeah. reason to suspect that Sheffield is any different in that respect. And that's so. that the um, people most in need don't get the best yeah. care. Yeah. Um, yeah, okay. So you mentioned a little bit about Sheffield, and um, what do you think the major problems in Sheffield are? Same as the major problems anywhere else. So yeah. the, the two the two headline metrics are healthy life expectancy. Um, mm-hmm. If I'm born tomorrow, how long can I expect to live in a state of good health? And in Sheffield, I may get these numbers wrong now because you're asking me to quote them uh, quote them um, uh, without looking at any notes. Um, so um, it's about 64, 65 there or thereabouts. So uh, on average, a baby born today in Sheffield can expect to get to about 65 in good health. Um, however, there are stark inequalities in that. There's a 20, 25-year gap between best and worst. So a baby born in Darnall tomorrow can expect to get to about 50 in good health. Um, and a baby born in Door tomorrow can expect to get to about 75 in good health. Um, that's so that's yeah, it's a massive difference. Um, and that, that clearly affects their end health outcome. It also affects um, NHS and then downstream social care demand, but it also affects economic productivity um, because uh, contrary to popular belief, multimorbidity, which is the kind of the converse of healthy life expectancy, um, is more common in working age people than, than, than older people. Um, so, so all of that affects economic productivity and our ability to work. And guess what? Work is a really important determinant of health. So, uh, so something that affects our inability to work is important from an economic perspective as well as it is a health perspective. So there are inequalities in healthy life expectancy. And then the, the other big story, and that, that's not new, but the other big story is historically healthy life expectancy and life expectancy, how long can I, can I actually expect to live, grew um, at a reasonably constant rate over, over a period the rate of growth has now significantly slowed, hasn't yet gone down. I don't think healthy life expectancy or life expectancy is yet going down, 
but the rate of growth has certainly stalled. Um, and that's a massive concern. And given the amount of data that's in the, the calculation of health life expectancy, life expectancy, it's not a statistical artifact or something old. It's, it's happening. It's Why happening. do you think that is? Oh, now, um, th- three, three or four reasons. No one really knows, uh, actually. Um, uh, the, the various academic bodies have um, uh, tried to tried to or are currently shedding light on that and I suspect the answer to all of those pieces of academic work will be it's a bit complex and we're not quite sure. My own theory is that austerity and the policies inherent in austerity are basically the petrol that has been thrown on the flames then working back from that I think we're now dealing with people who are getting to a certain age that have um, lived through the economic uncertainty of the late 70s, the 80s and the early 90s, whereby we had widespread economic liberalism um, and significant widening of of economic and wealth inequalities. And all that follows that, people are now getting to a certain age where that and the stress that that causes is beginning to catch up with them, as well as all of the standard stuff like we smoke too much, we drink too much, we don't, we don't exercise enough. You know, all of that is in the mix as well. All of that together, then with the consequences of six, seven years of austerity policies that stripped back a lot of the state protections are beginning to, to, to cause the slowing. So that's my theory. Um, it's unprovable. To be honest, um, so um, Public Health England, I think, are doing doing an inquiry at the moment, and I'll bet a month's pay that their conclusion is we're not quite sure. Um, but so so that's the big thing is the um, the inequalities in life expectancy and healthy life expectancy, and the slowing of the growth of those across the population. Now that's happening here in Sheffield, definitely. It's happening nationally, it's also happening internationally. And worryingly, there are some parts of this country, and certainly in America, life expectancy is going down. Um, and that is that's huge news, um, and very, very underplayed. Um, um, it will come to us, no doubt. And um, worryingly, I suspect life expectancy will go down in the poorest and continue to rise slowly in the most affluent, therefore widening the uh, inequalities in health between best and worst, whether you express that by geography or by black, white, disabled, non-disabled, however you want to express it. So that, that, that's the key headline metric one. The other one is infant mortality, which is commonly held as the pyramid of a bunch of metrics around child and maternal health. Um, for a range of reasons, and I don't dispute epidemiology behind it. So uh, looking back over the last 20 or 30 years, in the rate of infant mortality has, has plummeted, more than halved. Um, it's an amazing good news story. Over recent years, and this made me sit up straight in my chair when I looked early in the new year, the rate of decline has slowed. So we've now kind of got to the bottom of a rate of decline. And I saw some national data, we've not yet crunched our numbers locally, but I saw some national data published in a letter in the BMJ. The uh, infant mortality rate is going up in the poorest now. Uh, And interestingly, in Sheffield, our infant mortality, the last number we have was a slight increase. Uh, Not statistically significant, but certainly enough to be on the worry radar. And what I suspect will happen is that infant mortality rates will continue to decline, but at a slower rate in the most affluent and start to go up in the poorest. Again, a a marker of health inequality. So um, those are the two key headline metrics for population health. There's a lot of good that's happening, it's fair to say. Two, two things I'll pick on, I could go on about indicators all day, but I won't. 
point with me at all. Two things I'll pick on smoking. Um, people say X is the new smoking. No, sadly, smoking is still the new smoking. Um, until prevalence rate is about 5%, it will continue to be the new smoking. Uh, smoking rates in this town are 15, no, 16, 17%, there or thereabouts. Um, but again, why the inequality? So there are some parts of town where smoking prevalence is 30, 40%, um, uh, and some parts where smoking prevalence is 3 to 4%. Um, and I'll let you guess which parts of town those are. The rate of smoking is coming down across the city, and that's good news. And our job is to accelerate the rate of decline, and we're pushing pretty hard on that at the moment uh, with, with some success. So well, I can be all a bit doom and gloom, but there are some good things happening. Um, the second indicator I'd pick on is breastfeeding. We've pushed, um, breast, breastfeeding is good for you, who knew? Um, so we've pushed really hard on breastfeeding, trying to get a whole town approach to, to, to baby-friendly, not just a healthcare system approach to baby-friendly. We've opened breastfeeding rooms in this building and, and, and uh, shops up and down the mall. Fabulous. The rate of initiation and rate of breastfeeding in six weeks, I think we're the best in Yorkshire, um, and up, up there with the best in the country, which given our kind of deprivation profile is something to celebrate. So I, I can be all a bit doom and gloom about infant mortality and things like that, but there's a lot of good going on and we're broadly doing the right things. And people will say, but it's not getting better. Yes, true. It's not getting worse as well. And I think if we continue to focus our energies on doing the right things, then that's the best that we can do. Well, it's um, great to hear that there's some good things. Um, so you've mentioned a lot um, about public health and population health. Yep. And I wonder whether you could just clarify the difference. There isn't one. There yeah. isn't one. I can't, I've thought a lot about this. And as you know, I've written umpteen blogs on population health. Um, I, I don't know what the difference is. Um, my, my only perhaps slight distinction, and Dave, Dave Book has a, from the King's Fund does an interesting line on this. And he, he frames public health as a profession um, that, that, that leads um, efforts of a place to improve the health of a population, aka population health. But, um, and I've said this to Dave, Emperor's New Clothes, um, I, I can't see the difference between the two things, to be honest. Maybe I would say that from a position of defensiveness as the Director of Public Health, but I've, I've thought a lot about it and I can't see much of a difference. Some people will find the language population health attractive and engage with it. Some people will find the language of public health attractive and engage with it. So um, do, do the right thing. Okay, yeah. Can health professionals without a public health background or sort of population health, same thing, um, work to tackle health inequalities. Yeah, they do so yeah. every day in yeah. the poorest parts of town and they do a fabulous job, to be honest. Yeah. Um, so, um, yeah, of course they can. They can, um, one, provide system, systematic and population-oriented risk management for their populations. Two, offer patient-centred care. Any population versus patient-centred, the flip sides of the same coin, by and large. And three, they can advocate and do advocate for the right thing to happen for their patients. Um, and I would never, ever underestimate the power of a, the advocacy of a, of a jobbing doctor. I'm just a bureaucrat in a suit that inhabits a giant office in the town hall. But a, a jogging doctor with a around the house, I was on ward round this morning, I was, it was, it was in surgery this morning. Those stories really make a difference. So never underestimate that, never underestimate that advocacy power. So um, yes, there's plenty of things that um, GPs and other healthcare professionals can do and do so really well every day of the week. Well, thank you. <laughs> do, you do you think that as a GP or as a hospital doctor, do you think you have to care about health inequality? 
Well, I'd like to think that people care about health inequality. Um, I imagine that most people that work in the tougher parts of the town care deeply about health inequality. I'd imagine that docs and clinicians more broadly in hospital practice arguably care less about health inequality because their worldview is different. They, they provide care to people who come through the door rather than the population of patients more broadly and caring about what drives the, the, the health needs of that population. So um, do, do you have to care about health inequalities to be a good clinician? No, you don't. Um, but if you do care about health inequalities, then argue, arguably, you, arguably it makes you a more um, powerful advocate for your population. Yeah, okay. And as the Director of Public Health, do you think you need to care about this stuff? You ought to. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yes. Um, I imagine there are a few directors of public health that don't that don't care about health inequalities. I can't. I, none, none of those that I can think of are uncaring or, or, or flippant about such matters. So, uh, so yes, I think is the obvious answer. Okay, great. Okay, okay. So we're coming towards the end now, and it was really useful to hear some of the resources that you uh, mentioned earlier about for health professionals or professionals generally yeah. to find out more about health inequality. Could you tell me one book that you would recommend to someone starting on their career? Um, Two. Can I do two? You can do two, um, yes. One would be The Spirit Level, uh, Wilkinson and Pickett. It is, is a really, really good primer on the, 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 the reason why inequality is, one, insidious, and two, actually, unequalness in health outcomes actually affects the whole of population health. You, we won't address improvements in population health per se until we address inequalities in best worst. Um, so uh, and Spirit Spirit level is a pretty good intro into that. Michael Marmer's status syndrome is also well worth a read. It's a kind of a um, a lay summary of all of his decade long decades long experience and it's very good. Uh, the other book that I frequently recommend to people who want an insight into public health is Saving Gotham, uh, which is the story of the um, Commissioner for Health, aka the Director of Public Health in New York in the Bloomberg era. Um, and it's the, it's the story of how the Commissioner for Health brings the science, Bloomberg, Bloomberg brings the politics, and together they do amazing things in New York and accelerate the improvements in life expectancy. And that's a hard thing to do, and credit to them for having done it. So, uh, so those are three. And you said one, I said three. So those are, those are the three books I normally recommend to people who kind of want an introductory primer. They're all, Spirit Level is quite a difficult read, actually, but Status Syndrome and uh, particularly Saving Gotham are really, really easy reads. They're not, they're kind of designed for lay audiences. They're very, very good. Okay, fantastic. Well, thank you very much for that. And finally, if you were given one magic thing that you could do so um the genies appeared to you and you've got one wish that you can have granted um that could improve health equity and equality what one thing so i had a a, a a difficult discussion with an orthopedic surgeon about six or seven years ago he wanted me to say nice things about a toy that he wanted uh, sorry a, a clinical intervention that he wanted uh, they wanted nhs funding for um there was little evidence it was cost effective or, or, or actually clinically effective. So uh, we had, we had a, a robust discussion uh, and, and he said, so, so you care about health inequalities, don't you? I said, yeah, yeah, okay. What would you do? And I said two things. I said I would fund um, 
primary care properly in the poorest parts of town and I would fund primary schools properly in the poorest parts of town. Um, and, and both are, are euphemisms for a broader bunch of stuff. Primary care is not just general practice, there's a whole bunch of stuff that goes around that. Primary schools isn't just the institution, it's the primary school, there's a whole bunch of stuff that goes from the point of birth up to the point of school readiness and then primary school. And in our poorest parts of all of our towns, both are underfunded. Um, and if I want to improve health inequalities, I'm going to look at both of those two things. Wow, I would really love to be able to get the genie to do that for you, Greg. So you've chosen two things that really are at the heart of the community, so both primary schools and primary care. And I think they are really both truly important things. And what a great way to finish. Thank you. I have really enjoyed our discussion today, Greg, particularly hearing about your current role and also the specific problems in Sheffield. Um, I've lived here for the last 12 years and I find hearing about the specific things in the local area and places I know really hit mm-hmm. home for me. I think one of the other things that you mentioned is that's really important is looking outside of your current job and your current space and sphere of influence mm-hmm. and that's something that I'm definitely going to take away and try and do and not just think about the NHS and healthcare but mm-hmm. think about green spaces and um, air pollution and things like that so thank you very much Um, thank you for giving up your time because I know how busy you are Um, I have certainly lots to go away and think about and a long reading list as well (laughs) and I hope you all listening agree so take care Greg thank you thank you thank you all for listening you will be able to find further episodes on the Fair Health website if you haven't been on there already please do check this out at www.fairhealth.org.uk. It is a fantastic educational resource. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe, rate and review us. If you have ideas, would like to talk to us, or even if you have a suggestion of someone we could interview for an episode, please do get in touch via Twitter, at FairHealth or at RMSteen. It would be great to hear from you. I'm really looking forward to you joining us next time on our journey to finding fair health.